Well, good morning, everyone. Over the past few weeks, uh, various members of our household have taken turns being sick. Um, I understand that a few of us understand this very deeply. And, uh, you know, as a result of the last few weeks, there have been more than a couple trips to Shoppers Drug Mart to pick up various prescriptions and other types of medication. And this week, I was taking yet another inventory of what we had and what we needed. And, and as I was looking at our medicine cabinet, I found an old prescription for an antibiotic just kind of sitting there. And what came to mind was the story of one antibiotic, the story of penicillin, which has a Canadian connection, as many of us are aware. In 1928, a man named Alexander Fleming came back to his lab after he'd been away for some time, and he found that, well, there was stuff to clean up. He'd left a bit of a mess. And as he was about to do his cleaning up of his lab, he realized that growing there was a mold that had antibiotic properties. Now, at that time, this was a cure in search of a disease. I mean, he knew that he had found something significant, but it was going to take several more years of research to, to fully understand what it could do as a treatment for infections, and it would take then nearly 20 years for it to become widely available to treat infections, and today we get it prescribed all the time for things like, you know, staph infections, pink eye, ear infections. We've all probably had, a, unless you're allergic to penicillin, we've all probably had a, a prescription for penicillin from time to time. We, we almost take it for granted, don't we? Now, what is interesting is that the, the understanding of the crucifixion of Jesus has sort of followed a similar path. I mean, just think about this with me for a moment. Despite the fact that Jesus told his disciples over and over again that he was going to die, when he died, it kind of caught them off guard. It was as if they didn't know it was coming. And not only that, they, because they weren't aware that he was going to die or thinking that he was going to die, when he came back to life, that certainly would have caught them off guard. They wouldn't have seen that coming. And as a result... As a result, their first thoughts when they met the resurrected Jesus wasn't to think through the possible theological ramifications for what this would have meant. They were just like, whoa, you're alive. And it would take many years, it would take a few years before the early church started to realize that Jesus' death and his resurrection was actually the ailment for what cured them. And they started to develop ways of thinking and talking about, what, about the significance of this thing that had happened. And what is interesting, though, is that different communities and different generations of Christians have reflected on what the ailment is that Jesus' death cures differently. And that's what we're talking about in this sermon series. You know, as we approach Good Friday and Easter, we are looking at some of the different ways that we can understand what has been called the atonement. And by way of reminder, uh, this is the definition of the atonement that we're working with for this series. That the atonement is the work of Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection to reconcile humanity with God. Well, last week as we got this series started, we, we talked about uh, a way of understanding the atonement that we called the payment model. It's probably the way of understanding the atonement that most of us know the best. And the payment model says that, you know, we are all sinners and that our sin has offended God to the point that a punishment is necessary to make things right. But unfortunately, you and I can't do anything to, to pay that punishment. We can't satisfy that sin debt. But the good news is that Jesus willingly took our place and he, and he died on the cross. And as a result, our penalty has been paid and we can be forgiven and we can have a relationship with God. That we can be reconciled to God. 
Now, let me tell you something that I noticed last week as I talked about the payment model. See, as I walked through the payment model, I watched a bunch of us lean forward and start to nod our heads and saying, yeah, as if like I resonate with this, I understand this, this rings true for me. But I also noticed a bunch of us get really tense. Like you tightened up physically, I watched it. And the only time, that point when you kind of relax finally is when I went through the cons list, the pros and cons of this payment model. And I think that represents the fact that for some of us, this understanding of the atonement, that, that Jesus' Jesus's death is a payment to God on our behalf, we find that problematic. And it, it, and it kind of makes us tense up. And we need to, you know, I just wanted to name that. For some of us, we were like, yeah, this is exactly true for me. Others of us were like, ooh, I'm not sure what I think about this. This week, we're going to turn our attention to th- another way of thinking about the atonement. And we're going to call it the victory model. Historically, it's been called the ransom theory, or it's been called Christus Victor. And we're going to be looking at how this way of thinking about the atonement reflects a different understanding of, about what ailment Jesus' death addresses. But before we get to it, let's just again remember the big idea, the guiding thought for this series. It's a bit wordy, but, it, it, but here it is. What Jesus accomplished on the cross was so big that we need different perspectives on the atonement to appreciate what Jesus has done for us and for our world. Now this morning we're going to dig into this victory model, which can be defined like this today. Jesus conquered, uh, conquered sin through his death and resurrection, freeing us and reconciling humanity with God. And to get us thinking about this, we're going to start by looking at two pieces of scripture. The first is from, uh, from Colossians chapter 2. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, the powers and authorities referred to in this verse is understood as being like the forces of evil, including evil spiritual powers and beings who have influence uh, influence in our world that are in conflict with God. And these verses talk about how by dying on the cross and by rising again, that Jesus not only defeated these powers, but he openly exposed their defeat for all to see. Here's another one from Hebrews chapter 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. In this passage, we read about how Jesus shared our humanity, and how that shared humanity enables him to confront and to defeat the devil through his death on the cross. And this victory not only destroys the the devil's power over death, but it delivers humanity from the fear and and enslavement that sin imposes on us. That through Jesus, we are offered freedom from the grip of sin. Now, in what we talked about last week in that payment model, Jesus' death is understood as a payment to satisfy God. But this victory model presents a different way of understanding what exactly Jesus did and who Jesus' death was for. Here, Jesus' death isn't a payment to God, but is a defeat of sin's power. The victory model says that Jesus' death frees us from bondage to sin and thus makes reconciliation with God possible. See, through this victory, the powers of sin and death and evil, they lose their control over our lives. 
Now, this way of understanding the atonement was widely, un- widely held for about the first thousand, one thousand years of, Christian, of the Christian church, and very much reflects how those early Christians understood their world and how they understood how the universe worked. And uh, this remained the prevalent way of thinking until Anselm, and we talked a bit about Anselm last week, came around. And, and while this way of the atonement never, thinking about the atonement, never completely went away, it's had a bit of a resurgence in the last 100 years, starting in about 1930 with a man named Gustav Alin. I admit my Swedish pronunciation of names is pretty weak, so if you know Swedish and you can pronounce this better than me, you can give me a tutorial later. But Gustav there wrote a book called Christoph, Christus Victor. And he reminded folks that this way of thinking about the atonement was the dominant way of, of, of understanding why Jesus had to die and what was accomplished by the early Christian fathers who, who people hold in high regard today. And it was their understanding that the death and resurrection of Jesus, the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus resulted in a decisive victory over the powers of evil. Now, this all might feel a little bit confusing, and so let me turn this to a story here. How many of us are familiar with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? That book, okay. If you aren't, go find the movie on Disney or go find the book in your library because the, we might be most familiar with this perspective on the atonement through C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in this story, we, there is one child named Edmund who eats some Turkish delight candy uh, and in the process, he indebts himself to the White Witch. Now, according to the deep magic from before the dawn of time, this witch now has claim over Edmund and the right to execute him because of his betrayal of a sibling. So the charge is treason and there's no chance for forgiveness. And so into this crisis, Aslan, who's this messianic lion figure, makes a side deal with the witch. You know, and she's going to let Edmund go in exchange for killing Aslan in Edmund's place. And Edmund's siblings are completely horrified that, and grief-stricken that their brother's sin would result in the murder of their beloved leader, but this is what must happen, according to the, according to the story. But the witch is tricked. And after a night of celebration by the witch, assuming that victory had been won, and a night of grieving by Aslan's followers, Aslan, Aslan comes back to life and he's more powerful than ever. And we are led to understand that while the white witch seemed to understand some of this deep magic, that she doesn't know all of it, and she's unaware that resurrection is a part of the deep magic. Now, as a result, the, 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 death and resurrec- the result of the death and resurrection of Aslan is multifaceted. I mean, Edmund has been freed from his obligations to the witch, and now uh, he has the opportunity to be reconciled to his siblings and to Aslan. But something else happens here, too. See, the power of the witch and the power of her people begins to wane and is, in fact, defeated. And over time, the winter that has been imposed by the witch gives way to spring. And in short, all of Narnia is freed from the witch's power, not just Edmund. Now, I'm recounting the story because it really does describe the victory model of the atonement quite well. And it illustrates, I think, the the reality that this way of understanding the atonement is best understood through story uh, and not necessarily a systematic set of points. That said, I'm going to give you a systematic set of points. (laughs) I'll try my best to anyways. 
This uh, model of understanding the atonement begins with the recognition that sin is a fundamental problem. And key verses for this uh, include uh, from Romans 3 and then from Romans 6, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and for the wages of sin is death. Now, we, we read these verses last week, but in the context of this victory model, we are reminded that, that sin is a part of each of our stories, and the presence of sin is something that results in what can be described as death, a broken relationship with God, uh, as well as various forms of, of, of captivity and suffering, basically things that are not the life that God designed us to be our best in. And the earliest proponents of this way of thinking saw that all of this began in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve bargaining away their freedom, and the freedom of the whole human race, by the way, in exchange for what they hoped they would get as a result of eating the fruit from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Now, we're going to name this again later, but one of the things that, that this understanding of the atonement identifies is that sin is not just something that impacts us as individuals, as, 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 not just something that impacts humanity, but this death is, in fact, felt by all of creation. And this gives, moves us to our next point here, that the result, that the, res, the result is that sin places humanity under the influence of evil spiritual forces. From Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. According to this victory way of understanding the atonement, what sin does is hold us hostage, so to speak, and keep us, keeps us captive to its whims. This is why in the New Testament we read uh, of the New Testament authors uh, talking about people being slaves to sin. You know, sin is not just something that is personal, that is expressed in our choices, but it's a power. It's a power that's often personified as Satan that has significant influence over us and over our world and is contrary to the life and ways of God. Again, if we were to think about the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, the problem here is not just that Edmund has done something wrong, although that's problematic, but it's that there are oppressive power, there's oppressive power that keeps all the creatures in Narnia living in fear. And so that leads us to our next point, that Jesus' death serves as a payment that frees us from this captivity. Jesus, in Mark chapter 10, says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, as an expression of his love for us, God offers Jesus in our place as the ransom. And the term ransom refers to the price that was required to liberate somebody from captivity or to liberate somebody from slavery. And in this context, Jesus' death is understood as the necessary payment to free humanity from the power of sin and the claim of Satan by placing himself in our place. Now, in case we're trying to keep, in, keep track in our minds about how this is different than the payment model that we talked about last week, this is, this is where we need to keep in mind what the ailment is that is being described, that Jesus' death is described as being the cure to. See, the crucifixion in the payment, in the payment model is a legal transaction. Something has been done wrong, there's a crime, and there's a punishment, and, G, and God is the judge. And Jesus serves as, our, as the paying the penalty that, is, that we deserve. 
Well, in, the, um, in this model, that's not what happens here. Jesus is not understood as fulfilling some sort of legal transaction, but he is uh, God's payment to Satan to redeem us from slavery, from our captivity, our bondage to the ways of sin. Again, we can have in mind the scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Aslan negotiates the freedom of Edmund by offering himself to the witch, and the witch eagerly agrees to it. Now, in this story, though, all the witch can see is the possibility of her, of her enemy being defeated. But what she's unaware of is that her enemy will, while her enemy will indeed suffer and die, that because of who he is, that death will not last. That the worst she can do will be overcome and the limits of her power will be exposed. And this moves us into their next point and it illustrates our next point that Jesus' death and resurrection breaks the power of sin. From Colossians chapter 2, we've read this already, but I'll read it again. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, how exactly this happens, it's, it's unclear. But the premise is that God made an offer to Satan, and Satan greedily accepted that offer, assuming that killing Jesus would result in his victory, only to find that because Jesus is divine, that because Jesus is sinless, that he can't handle, Satan can't handle, Satan can't hold on to Jesus. Thus, Jesus overcomes the power of Satan and the power of sin. And this is at the center of this approach to the atonement, that, that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, defeats the forces of sin and triumphs over Satan. And as a result, the power of sin is broken and we can be confident that one day its influence will be no more. And this leads us to our last point, that Jesus' victory restores our relationship with God. From Romans chapter 5. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through his death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life. The victory model, this victory way of understanding the atonement sees our reconciliation with God as one of the results of Jesus' victory. You know, at one point, our sin meant that we were estranged to God. It held us back from knowing God like we could. But now, because of the death and resurrection of, of Jesus, we are set free from our obligations to sin. Sin's no longer holding us back because its power has been broken. And our relationship with God can be set on track. It is now possible for us to know God like we were designed to know him. Let me change gears here for a moment and get us to think about a time when, when we met somebody um, who had been at the same event that we'd been at. Maybe we're talking about a sporting event. Maybe it, it's a play. Maybe it's a conference. Maybe it's a concert. Whatever. And as we are talking with that individual, we might find that, that a lot of our experiences were the same. You know, we heard the same music, we saw the same light show, we saw the same final score of that game. But over the course of the conversation, we might just find that different things stood out to us. See, while we were there taking copious amount of notes, not wanting to miss anything that the speaker was saying because it was just so good, they noticed something that we didn't. They saw a brief moment when the speaker got choked up when talking about somebody that was close to them. And that brief moment uh, really helped them connect with the speaker even more and hear what that speaker was going to say in a different way. Now, while we didn't catch the, that particular detail ourselves, 
Having heard that, that story uh, explained to us, there now lies the potential to add a whole other layer to our understanding of what we've experienced. You know, something that we already thought was pretty special, we can add another layer of understanding to that and appreciate it maybe at a different level. You know, throughout this series, as we go through different ways that we could understand the atonement, I'm going to emphasize that it's perfectly fine for us to find one of these perspectives on the atonement to be more compelling or more helpful than the others. But by listening to these other perspectives on the atonement, listening to these other ways that people have historically understood Scripture and, and, and tried to make sense of what this thing is that Jesus did for us, that we might be able to add new layers of appreciation and understanding to this big thing that we already knew was huge and already knew was super important. We could add new layers of understanding uh, to uh, how we think about the cross and the resurrection for that matter. And so, uh, to help us with this, I want to end by looking at some pros and cons of this approach as we're going to do throughout this series. And like I said last week, we're going to start with the cons because I always want to see if we can end on a positive note here. So, cons to understanding the atonement as victory. Here we go. Here's four of them. First, it can lack clarity about how this victory is achieved. You know, as we talked about this understanding of the atonement, you may have found yourself wondering, hey, how exactly does this work? And you know what? That is one of the critiques of this position, that there is some ambiguity in simply and clearly explaining how Jesus' death achieves victory over sin and death. There's some ambiguity there, and and so you might say it lacks some clarity. Second, it can seem to give Satan too much power. You know, if we aren't careful, the way that we talk about this perspective on the atonement uh, can seem to make Satan uh, an equal with God when, in fact, uh, you know, Satan is a created being uh, who is lesser than God and has a limited scope of abilities. But that is a, that is a danger here. Third, it de-emphasizes God's holiness and justice. I mean, critics have argued that, well, yes, this perspective, you know, rightfully highlights God's victory over evil. It can downplay the fact that God is holy and that God has expectations of justice. It can downplay those things. Fourth, it can have a limited focus on individual redemption. You know, for our purposes today, I've tried to present this, uh, this way of understanding the atonement with, within the focus of how does this apply to us. But if we were to step back and we were to study this, this perspective, and it's a wonderful perspective to study, um, we would see that the focus tends to be a whole lot bigger than you and me, and that is a good thing as we're going to talk about in a moment, but at the same time, it talks about this cosmic battle, and it sometimes downplays the importance of personal salvation. Things like repentance, things like us needing to seek forgiveness and and make a commitment to God ourselves can be downplayed in this perspective of the atonement. Now, I'll be honest, all of those cons I just listed have like uh, rebuttals. Like there are proponents of this that would say there are answers to each of these things. And that's the case for everything that we're going to talk about in this series. But we don't have time to go into all of that. And so let's let's look at some of the pros. The first is that, you know, it has an emphasis on, on Jesus redeeming all of creation. And this, like, this connects to the con that we just talked about here. Um, this per- perspective broadens the atoning work of Jesus to liberate not just us as individuals, but to, to liberate the whole creative order from the power of sin and death. 
Again, if we remember what the Apostle Paul tells us, the Apostle Paul tells us that all creation is groaning, waiting for its redemption. And so this, this victory model of the atonement, this victory way of describing the atonement, uh, reminds us that the redemption story is not just saving people from sin, but is about God making all things new. And so it has a big picture of what the atonement does. The scope of the atonement is quite large. Second, it offers a way of understanding the redemption story found throughout Scripture. As we read through the Bible, we will find themes of restoration and victory and reconciliation. We will find that from Genesis to uh, to Revelation uh, with implications for both individuals and the whole universe. And and so as we we read this redemption story and we have this victory model in mind, it actually helps connect things. That we start to see this overarching redemptive story starting right at the beginning and moving us right to the end where, where God has made all things new, has wiped away every tear, and the new heavens and the new earth are there. It, it, it ties it all together and it provides a neat way, not a neat way, a beautiful way. It's neato. No, a beautiful way of understanding the story of Scripture. Third, it's consistent with the teachings of Jesus on peace. You know, one of the critiques that we noted about the payment model is that with God demanding the violent death of Jesus, that seems to promote violence and retributive justice and not the ways of peace that Jesus teaches us in the Gospels. In contrast, in the victory model here, this victory description of the atonement, we see that Jesus models for us what victory through nonviolence looks like. See, instead of violently resisting uh, the powers of sin and death, Jesus' self-sacrifice exposes the reality of evil and is ultimately victorious. Think for a little bit about what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount about turning the other cheek. And then think about what we see Jesus doing on the cross. It It is fantastic. Jesus shows us what this actually looks like and what victory through nonviolence looks like. Fourth, it offers us hope and inspiration. You know, because Jesus is the ultimate victor over sin, this perspective offers us assurance that God's redemptive purposes are unstoppable and that this victory is not just something that happened in the past, but is ongoing and and, and in reality it can transform people and situations today. That we can have hope that no matter how dire our situation, that God's power is greater and will ultimately overcome powers of evil, the, the situations that cause suffering, that God wins. And as a result, we are inspired to live with confidence and encourage, knowing, encourage knowing that we are participants in bringing about this reality into being. And if we had more time this morning, we could talk about how our actions of pursuing things like justice and bringing, embodying love are ways that we, we bring to life as followers of Jesus what this victory looks like in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our cities, in our region. It should inspire us to act. In the book of Romans... We find a biblical tongue twister, so to speak, uh, as the Apostle Paul describes his struggle with sin. And I say tongue twister because it might take me two tries to get this one right. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I I do not want to do, this I keep doing. 
By the way, I nailed that, okay? <laughs> I got that. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I know. Can we leave that verse up there for a little bit there, Brian? Yeah. Um, I don't know about you, but this verse resonates with me deeply. Because I know what is right. I know what is good. I know what is loving. But more often than I, I would like to admit, I find myself in a place of regret, wondering why I wasn't able to live up to my own sense of what is right and what is wrong. And while ultimately there's nobody to blame other than myself, in moments of objectivity, I can see how my path to regret has been influenced by forces outside of myself. Here's the thing. My sin, your sin, is not just the result of an inward struggle, but is often the result of outside influences. And this understanding of the atonement that we've been talking about today reminds us of this. That there are voices, there are influences, there's whole systems and cultural forces that whose main objective is to move us away from God. And we can't be ignorant of this reality. Now, in saying this, we don't need to live in fear, nor do we need to think of ourselves as a victim of these forces. Instead, we remember what Jesus says when he says, greater is the one who is in you than, it, than the one who is in the world. You know, Satan and the, pow- and the powers of sin are not all powerful, and their level of influence is limited and has, in fact, been defeated by Jesus. And what this means is that for those of us who have decided to follow Jesus, that we are free from our obligations to sin. You know, we don't have to be stuck in our our patterns of sin and regret. We can make new choices. And while sin might be present and might be tempting, that because of Jesus, the, the power that's been given to sin no longer needs to be what it used to be. And because the Holy Spirit is a part of our lives, we can resist its influence and learn new patterns. And for some of us this morning, we need to hear this. Because we are living as captives, we are living as victims, we are living as we, though we, we are stuck. When in reality, if you are a follower of Jesus, if we are followers of Jesus, we are victors. That we don't have to live in that identity, we don't have to live in that habit. Yeah, we might find ourselves, you know, going back to it from time to time, but that is not who we are. And we have the Holy Spirit, we have the victory that Jesus has won in us working through us, moving that, making that victory increasingly more and more a part of who we are. And some of us, we just need to embrace this, hold on to it, and find time and find space to allow it to sink deep within us. This afternoon, tonight, tomorrow, into tomorrow evening, we have this reset retreat. And let me encourage us to make good use of this. It is 31 hours. You don't, please don't come for the, well, you can come for the whole thing if you want, but we're going to put you to work if you do. Um, No, we won't. Sarah says, don't say that. Okay, you can come for the whole thing. We won't put you to work. Uh, Like, come. If you've got an hour, come. If you've got two hours, come. But for some of us, we need to come to this because life is so busy. Life has had so, we've had so much happen to us in our lives that we find ourselves just feeling stuck like we are victims, like we are stuck in our cycles of regret, and we need a moment or two or three to stop, to take a deep breath, and to be in a space where God might remind us about who we are, that we have been set free. And we need time and space to be reminded of that. 
Yes, you know, we can talk to God anytime. We could do our devotions at home every day, but sometimes we need a moment in time, a space set aside for that to become a reality, sink in, and for God to tap us on the shoulder and say, you think this about yourself, but this is what I think of you. I love you, and I've done everything possible for you to be free and to be a new person. We need moments like that for God to remind us. Let me just tell you a quick story that is way off my notes, but from my experience of Reset last year. I came into Reset, and my favorite thing, I always tell people, is a labyrinth, prayer labyrinth downstairs. That's where I'll be for the whole time, if you let me, okay? If nobody interrupts, I'll just walk around this, like, loop. And I always go into this thing with, like, I need to talk to God about this, this, and this. And I go in with an agenda. And I go through this thing twice, praying through my little agenda. God, I need this. This is a problem going on. And by the end of it, suddenly my pr- the way that I'm thinking, the way I'm praying is completely different. It's often not even connected to what I went in there thinking I needed. We need opportunities where God can say, okay, get it all out, people. And now let me, now now you listen. Now listen. My hope and prayer is that this reset retreat for some of us would do this and we would find ourselves being able to live out the freedom that Jesus has died to give us. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we want to say thank you for who you are. Lord, for your love that is for us is that is so big that we have trouble comprehending it. And Lord, to be honest, sometimes we don't believe it. In our minds, we have limited the possibility that you could care for us because of the things that we've done, the patterns that are part of our lives, the, the mistakes that we've made. And yet, Lord, this morning we are reminded that you came to rescue us. To, to, to save us from the powers that want to hold us back and to keep us from the life that you created us to be our best in. And so, Lord Jesus, this morning we ask that we, you would help us to internalize this. Lord, that we would not see, see ourselves as victims, that we would not see ourselves as being stuck, but, Lord, that we would hear you reminding us that you have won the victory, and, Lord, that that victory is ours. Holy Spirit, would you speak to those of us who are struggling this morning? Would you speak words of comfort for those of us who aren't sure what tomorrow will look like? Will you give us assurances that you are with us, even in in those times of struggle? Lord, some of us are dealing with some health concerns, and we're not sure how things are going to turn out. And Lord, together as a a congregation, we want to say, Lord, would you bring healing? Would you bring wholeness? Would you bring a fresh sense, a fresh understanding to the circumstances of those who are struggling here this morning with their health? Lord, for others of us, our, our past, well, that's defining our, our story. And Lord, we need to live in the reality of your forgiveness and your love. And so, God, we, we ask that you, that might sink in deep for us this morning. And that, Lord, if we come back here to reset, Lord, that, that, that we would encounter you. In fact, Lord, for anyone who comes to reset today, we, we ask that we would encounter you in a fresh, real way. That, that as we walk out, we would feel lighter. We would feel as though we, we met you. And that you are a part of our story, bringing about your redemption in our lives. God, we thank you for who you are and for what you have done and what you are doing. In your name we pray, amen.